I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by Reshma Saujani, the founder of Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms. Stay tuned. Like many, I feel like I always play on a mental teeter-totter of decision-making that straddles elements of risk, fulfillment, discovery, and safety all at the same time. Mustering the courage to embrace failure through a culture of learning and also seek achievement and affirmation is a struggle, but can also bring great joy. For women, finding this joy can be a profound challenge in virtually every layer of our global society, and collectively, our critical mission must include structurally ensuring empowerment through opportunity, with each lesson learned closing gender gaps everywhere. Now, as a parent, I hope my daughter and all girls have a broad range of expansive opportunities and can face them with determination, bravery, and courage to learn and help pave more pathways for actually everyone. This hope is much, much brighter because of inspiring people like Reshma Saujani, the founder of Girls Who Code, the phenomenal organization that's working to close the gender gap in tech. Reshma grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois, and is a Harvard-trained policymaker and a Yale-trained lawyer. For her, both running for public office and serving the public through activism have cultivated a spirit to embrace courage and bravery over the confines of perfection. Girls Who Code has served over 300,000 girls, with 50% coming from underrepresented groups. But most recently, Reshma has been the absolute driving force behind the Marshall Plan for Moms, highlighting the current structural inequities felt by working mothers, centering around systemic policy reforms, and prioritizing moms in the economic recovery. As we chatted back in March of this past year, we reflected on the challenges faced by moms as the world has so dramatically changed. You know, why is building sort of a critical firewall around motherhood so vital for for future success, not only of just um, individuals, but of communities and, and institutions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think that this pandemic kind of uh, exposed fractures in our society that always existed. And I think for us as mothers, we realize that we are often treated like America's social safety net. And I think the school closures really demonstrated this. So for me, you know, I started this pandemic with um, a newborn baby, a five-year-old, and I was the CEO of a, the largest women and girls nonprofit in the world. And I was finally going to take my maternity leave. And I had actually had my baby via surrogate. And so I was in particular looking forward to this time where I could really bond with him and be with him and just kind of make up for some of those months that we didn't have, you know, together. And then COVID happened and I found myself having to cancel my maternity leave um, when my baby was a couple of weeks old, having to homeschool my five-year-old and having to save my global nonprofit. Um, I got COVID-19, it barely registered. My liver started failing. Uh, I got acne in the way that I haven't gotten acne since I was 16 years old and I was just shot. And every time I looked at my Zoom screen, every woman looked exactly how I felt. And I think for a lot of us in the beginning of COVID, we were just trying to grin and bear it. 
and thinking that when September comes around and the schools open and the schools open and the schools open, everything will get a break. Right. Well, the schools never opened. And part of the moment for me was just the sense of shock that somebody had come up with this hybrid model um, and that they had this 1950s sensibility that there was a default caretaker at home that was going to homeschool that children and I child. And I realized, well, that person is me and they didn't even ask me. And I think that the fear that like, there were all these quite frankly, men who were making decisions about my life and I had zero control of it, um, terrified me. And I think terrified millions of mothers, quite frankly, tens of millions of mothers across the globe. Yeah. Well, and, and is that sense of vulnerability and almost disempowerment um, now that it's been a year of almost, you know, complete sociocultural change, what have you learned from, from that in the strategy for recapturing that empowerment and really getting rid of that kind of 1950s mentality that those structural or institutional norms, which used to be the case, now are so different? And yeah. how, how, do we, how do we change that? Well, that you can't be silent. And I think for so many of us moms, we're just used to being martyrs. And I understand it as like a Desi woman. You know, my parents came here as refugees. They were expelled um, from Uganda. And I often used to ask my dad, like, you know, literally they had 90 days to leave the country. They'd be shot on spot, even though two generations of their family were born there. And I used to always say to my dad, how did you not fight? Hmm. Like, how did you not fight? And so many of the Ugandan Asians never participated in, in, in the system, never voiced their concerns. And yeah. literally their rights were taken away in a moment's notice. And so that was a big aha. I think what's been happening this past week on Asian hate is a big aha about silence. You know, I grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois, one of the few, uh, you know, in the 80s when we were one of the few Indian families in our neighborhood. And our house would often get spray painted with, you know, go back to your own country. Yeah. And I just had this image of my father sitting outside and just quietly Clorox bleaching the side of our home. Right. Never complaining. Didn't call the police. Didn't express not even one ounce of frustration or anger. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think for, I know we've been taught to be silent, to be quiet, to take it. And I think it's the same thing as a mother. I mean, it's it's wild to think that in one year of what's happened with the schools, moms never protested and said, enough, we're not doing it. Right. Well, and and is there a balance that has to be, not even a balance, sort of like this idea that you can be resilient and you can create um, your own wellness through these kinds of situations without being silent. You can still be vocal and create change and create movement and still be resilient at the same time. Or is the South Asian or Desi mentality that they're mutually exclusive, that you have to do one or the other. And for most moms this past year, I can imagine that Uh, that's just not a possibility. What an incredible question. I kind of think about it. You know, it, it is true. Almost we're, we're taught that you had to do one or the other, right? You either got to right. take it and be silent or you got to fight. And you're right. We were just too exhausted. 
I mean, that is the reason why all this is happening. It's just too tired. I just don't, I can't go get up and protest against, you know, for affordable childcare because I don't have the time, barely, barely making it right. Every day I fall into bed. I think like most mothers and, and just like, did that just happen to me? Right. And yeah. so, yeah, there, there is no extra time. There is no spare time. So I don't know. I don't know. And I think this is as an activist, I think this has been a constant struggle in my life in terms of um, take having self care, yeah. being able to take care of yourself and, and fighting because, you know, when you're an activist, the fight is never, the work is never done. Yeah. Like the work is never done. And I wonder if the strength of that voice comes through coalitions, through camaraderie, and, you know, moms actually realizing that their voices are louder when they're together. And have you found that at least um, having getting at least some comfort in knowing that there are other families out there who are actually experiencing similar things or that the voices are louder when they're actually, you know, chiming in together? Absolutely. And to feel like you're not crazy that yeah. like as you're experiencing these things, it's not just you. And the fact that these things are happening and is 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 crazy and you're just not yeah. you're not the only one who thinks that right so i think that that is really comforting in this moment i think what's hard in this moment is it's really hard to get help it's like you're worried about your parents right and and right. you know i have two 80 year old parents right and so you know they're not able to be a resource in the way that you rely on them sure. or you can't be like to your friends hey can you come babysit my kids i gotta go right. run out and do this thing yeah. so there's no space there's no time for yourself and i think the first thing that mothers have given up in this moment is their self-care and their their time for themselves whether it's going for a run in the morning or going for a walk or being able to go to church or you know whatever they needed to find kind of peace and solace they've given that up have you recognized that to the point of being able to say now in a leadership position that structurally and institutionally the um ingredients for allowing for that self-care for allowing for that wellness to happen that just needs to change going forward pandemic or not it needs to change but it also i don't and this is the tough part it also needs to be people have to be in you have, to, you have to force people to do it. Because I think what you've seen happen with parental leave, for example, mm. right, is that um, dads don't take it. Right. And they don't take it because they feel like they're going to get penalized at work. And so unless you mandate it or unless you make it as part of your performance review, you don't really get these kind of shifts in culture and shifts in behavior. And so I think that is the big aha is yeah. that so much of the housework, right? It's done 86% of the housework is done by women. So like you're working your full-time job, you're leaning into your career and you're doing everything or mostly everything at home and nothing has changed. Yeah. And nothing changed when you were locked with your partner and they, and you can't even say that, well, maybe he didn't know what I was doing right. or he didn't see it. Yeah. Now you saw it and you still didn't change your behavior. Right. That, and that's because that behavior, that, that work is not valued. Yeah. Right. And, and that is just again, exemplified by parental leave. If we as a society valued spending eight weeks, 12 weeks, 10 weeks with your child from the moment that they were born, then people would not be right. shirking that that rule. Well, and so, you know, it's it's funny because in pediatrics we always know that better outcomes happen when there is sufficient maternal 
um, child bonding in the very beginning. And really establishing that social bond is huge. My wife's a doctor and I actually have been staying at home and doing administrative work and she's been in clinic. And I think developing that empathy has been a real um, eye-opener in many ways for me. And I'm sure for lots and lots of families, but you're right that the institutional piece there really has to almost in some ways mandate that. Well, and we have to just recognize that it's not, we're not at equity. That if you're at a typical Zoom call, most of the ones who are being interrupted are the mothers. Yeah. You are the exception. You're not right. the rule. No. And, and, and that's okay. And that's, we just have to be honest about it. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's and, and so what I worry about is when we go back to work in the new normal and the new normal, let's say is three days in the office, two days out of the office, you know, that men are still going to the office more than women. Dads are still going to the office more than moms because moms, they don't want, they actually don't want to take on more responsibility. Right. They're like, I'm out of here. Yeah. Right. And then you still have moms who are like now using this flexibility to like take on that extra work that they are now doing. And they're still being gaslit, you know, gaslighted for having their kids in the zoom screen or they're not yeah. getting that promotion or they're not getting that opportunity. And so how are we going to regulate that and you know police that behavior, change that behavior? Because to say that men and women are equally going to take care, take advantage of this new flexibility and remote working is not true. Yeah. And that the way that we're going to see how they're taking advantage of that is also not true. Right. No. And, and I, you know, and reflecting on that, because there are so many of these cultural and normative behaviors that really need to be overcome for you as a South Asian woman now in 2021, kind of reflecting back on your own journey. And you shared some of that just now, you know, in, in the lessons that you've learned in, in the overcoming of your, of your congressional bid, have you been able to identify sort of key moments or memories where the kernels of having courage and taking risks and being brave were, were actually seated or yeah. even memories where it's like, no, no, that's the moment where I know that, you know, the deceleration happened or like, yeah. you know, it was just an, a reaffirmation of that terrible barrier. Well, I think the beginning, my first memory is my father reading to me these little Reader's Digest books about Mahatma Gandhi and Eleanor Roosevelt. So I've always been, I would say like my dharma has always been tied to uh, change makers. Like I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm moved by pain and struggle and people who are suffering always had that since I was a little girl. Um, and I think that those, those books that my father used to read me had enormous about it, so impact. And so I do that with my kids now, like I'll have like a two hour conversation with Sean about Dr. King, who he was, what, you know, what it was so, like taking that time to like, to make them their heroes, I think is really yeah. important. I think that the second really life-defining moment for me was when I was, you know, my, my eighth grade graduation, I was, you know, beat up because of the color of my skin. And I think before that moment, I was always trying to be white. I was mad mm -hmm. that my mom named me Reshma instead of Rebecca. You know, I was yeah. mad that my parents were, you know, Hindu instead of Christian. I was mad that we ate, you know, rotely in shock instead of, you know what I mean? Like sloppy joes, right? right. Um, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be like everybody else. And it was an aha moment that I'm not like everybody else. Yeah. And that I have to embrace who I am and live my truth. And so that was really, you know, a, a, a life. So, I, yes, I have had 
you know, my, my life in many ways falls a very linear path. I've kind of been doing the same thing since I was a little girl, which is interesting. And I don't think I ever realized it until I have a conversation like this. And I'm like, Oh, actually, you know, <laughs> now there are moments where I tried to like get off the path, yeah. but I always got right back on. And, um, so I've always been an evangelist. I've always been a fighter. I've always been about fighting for poor people, people of color, women, girls, like that's always kind of been my truth. You mentioned it's, it's fascinating to, to know that the, the sort of, um, powerful memories or the signature pieces that both excite you and, and compel you um, are ones of loss. And I'm so curious that, you know, had you not lost that congressional bid, do you think that the um, nature of your courage and bravery would have would have been the same? Did it? No. Take, right. So did it, did it take these kinds of experiences or losses for you to, in fact, generate the momentum and the um, kind of energy to galvanize that kind of leadership potential? Yeah, because I think I've always been, you know, we grew up working class, you know, we grew up like one of the few brown families. So I've always been like the underdog. And like, so when people count me out, well, you know, first, I, when people count me out and I lose things, it actually gives, gives me strength. Mm. Um, and it also makes me feel alive. Yeah. And so I'm as, as sick as this might sound, I'm a big fan of failure. Like I seek it out yeah. intentionally um, because I just think it makes me get better like an athlete, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and sharper and more refined. Sure. Like I often don't, I don't want everything right now to work out for me. Yeah. Uh, Cause I don't really feel like that is living, but yes, I think, I think loss is a big, I mean, even for me, you know, I had uh, 10 years of miscarriages and um until i had my children and it was i i thought that was a really dark decade for me mm. um and i would it, it almost be, i wrote about this i mean almost became a sick joke it's like lose a baby have a ted talk you know right. what i mean lose a baby right. like go go get your you know go write your book and it, it almost became this like thing where i felt i was like oh okay bring it right like it was yeah. always like that and um but i also realized that that's not normal nor is that yeah. healthy or nor is that good because I had to teach myself to never actually get to grieve mm -hmm. and never get to have normal emotions um, because I'd always had to balance mm -hmm. something personally that was hard happening to me at something that I had to show up for. Right. Um, well, and I mean, I wonder if that translation of <clears throat> coping and and taking loss and making that a motivator at some point gets just as exciting as the real joy of that success, particularly when you see that success spread, um, whether it's personal or professional. Yeah. I mean, I feel that every morning when my sons are on top of me and we're listening to some Bollywood music and they're just laughing and I, I, it's, the, it's the only place I want to be. And right. that came as my husband reminded me at a, in a tremendous amount of pain. That's when I realized like all of those years of pain are worth it for this moment of joy, like yeah. right now. Did, did it take a lot for you to sort of get to that point? Meaning that like, it's really something to stop and pause and reflect and soak that, let that soak in so that you can actually let it build to future motivations and future successes? I mean, not when it came to fertility, I tell women this all the time, 
it's like, it, it was actually quite shocking to me how immediately after I had my first child that I went straight into joy, yeah. that all of those years of all that pain, it's, um, it's almost like I forgot it. Yeah. And, and so that is the one place where I do feel like I'm, but you know, where I will say, I don't necessarily always feel this way is that girl, like, I mean, had I not lost those elections, I never would have started girls who code. Right. And there are, you know, there are, mo I mean, it's a different sense. There are moments, I think it's harder, especially I think for women to celebrate your professional successes. Mm. Uh, I think you can look back rationally, but I, I think again, because we've been taught to be modest, I always say like, you know, go to like, a, uh, you know, a kid's award ceremony and the boys will be like dabbing their way up on stage. And we're still like, who me? Right. So right. I still don't think professionally, we're like, oh gosh, I, I did this. Like yeah. you may, you know, like you were that person, you know, like nobody voted for you. You know, you lost, right. you know, horribly, but now you've built this incredible thing. I don't think we do that enough. You know, I wonder, and I wonder if there's um, a real sense of being prone to imposter syndrome where, you know, you're constantly doubting your own achievements and you're sort of in this reality of thinking like, well, that, that, that's not me. It's really not me. I haven't done all that as opposed to the more positive uh, version of just affirming you that all, all the time and yeah. having messages around you that affirm that. I don't know if it's imposter syndrome because I do feel like I've gotten over my imposter syndrome by being around a lot of very powerful men. I think it's more or less like we are, I, we are intensely driven in this like success driven culture that we never celebrate the wins mm. and we sit and wallow in our failures. That's the thing for me. I'll just say for myself that I need to work on. Sure. I need to do a better job of like when when amazing things happen that I like take a minute and like, like I did this, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I think that if you, but I really, when things don't work out, I like, I will talk about it incessantly over and over and I'll spin. Sure. Um, no. Um, and let me ask you this, you know, a lot in the South Asian community, first off, I mean, it, it, I think all of us are so proud of what you do and how you do it. And it's, it's really just a joy to, to see all that work go in. I can imagine that there are those in the South Asian community who might say that there's plenty of, or at least growing numbers of, of women um, in the community who are in tech or in STEM environments. But on a parallel note, why should it matter to all of us to increase those numbers further? And for that matter, to increase those numbers of women who are black or Latinx um, women in tech and for that matter, in overall leadership sort of positions. Look, I mean, I, I always say that, like, if you want to solve climate, COVID and cancer, you need girls, you need women, you need people of color sitting around the table. Like our world is just too complex. Mm. You know, there's too much to do to simply only allow white and Asian men to solve those problems. Right. And I, I really ultimately think that's all it comes down to. I, I think the other thing is, is that I think we just have to have a more honest conversation about, you know, about like unearned privilege. Mm. I think that there's a lot of excellence. There's a lot of people doing who have done, who are so prepared, who are so qualified, who are so ready to lead. And they just don't get opportunities because we only give them to a few. And yeah. that has to change. You have two young boys you're raising. What, tell me a little bit about some of your goals or aspirations 
in helping them to be more brave and courageous? Mm. Well, my son is like a little Gandhi. He's like not jumping off any monkey bars. He is so sweet. He just, every day he tells me how amazing I am. I, lo- I mean, I love him. Yeah. And I think though, I have to protect everybody from quote, manning him up, Yeah. you know? And so I want him to be able to be him and who he is, which is sensitive. He's me an enormous amount of emotional intelligence. I mean, it's, it just, it actually just stuns me. Mm. I mean, he like teaches me things every day. It's, it's wild, right? How you can have these children who are given to you, who have these incredible gifts. So I, I, I'm, I feel like I need to protect the universe from taking that from him. Yes. Um, The the other thing is, it's interesting because I, I was, I never thought I was going to be a boy mom. In Mm. fact, I I still look longingly at like my friends who have daughters, because that's all I thought I was going to have. But I realized that the gift in having sons is that part of to get to the gender the equity world that I want to get to, you need to involve men and they have to be a part of it. And so, so Sean and Sai are, you know, brought to my speeches and they see me lead. My Sean has been at every single pivotal moment from the TED stage to my interview with Trevor Noah to, you know, my speech at Harvard. Like he's right there. He just thinks that women lead like that is his reference point. And, you know, I think that's really powerful. No, that's huge. And I mean, his frame of reference being a world where women lead and and particularly his mom has got to be a big, big joy. Um, let me ask you this. Are, are you yourself a girl who codes? And for that matter, are girls, are girls who code girls who lead? Girls who code are girls who lead. You know, when I started Girls Who Code, I was not a coder and I didn't even bother to learn. Because I think we have this false sense of that, like to start something or build something, you have to be an expert in it. And I just don't think that's true. I think you have to have a passion for it. And I was passionate about coding because I thought that coding was the way that you march into the middle class. So, you know, as I've built girls who code, I have learned to code. In this pandemic, I have been doing a lot of scratch with my son, Sean. Um, The first time he just got, I was just so excited, right? Um, To do it with him. But yeah, I mean, if I could go back, I would have majored in computer science. You know, I think that so much of though my legal mind, I think I would have been good at it. Like, I think I would have yeah. enjoyed it. The idea of like problem solving and just feeling like I can sit here and build whatever I want. Yeah. You know, Rishma, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you as, as someone who does value bravery and, and the courage that's in, involved in, in risk taking, you know, one of the things we talk about in medicine is how do we enlist and engender trust in those around us because of that duty that we have. And I'm curious, how, how do you enlist trust in your own endeavors and, and hopefully in the teams that you lead so that you can create great outcomes too? I mean, look, I always hire people who are smarter than me and, and I, I give them opportunities and, you know, make them family. I know I recently stepped down as, as CEO of Girls Who Code and it was the best job I ever had. But my my new CEO, I met her five years ago. First time I had dinner with her, Dr. Trika Barrett, I knew she was the one. And I know how powerful this platform is. And I really wanted to give it to her. Um, Because I think that part of the problem with leadership is oftentimes we stay too long. And we don't let other people have the opportunity. So much of why I'm able to do the Marshall Plan for Moms now is I built Bolster Code. And I learned Mm -hmm. so much. I failed so much. And that is a gift to give, to give that to somebody. There aren't 
a million large organizations out there that you can always have an opportunity to, to run. Someone has to step down in order for you to step up. And I think that that is a very, very important lesson uh, that needs to be taught. It is the secret to building trust then through both humble achievement and frankly, giving. Yeah. And I think honesty, um, I think for me, everyone knows, you know, you're going to know exactly what I think about you. I have a horrible poker face. I'm brutally honest, you know, sometimes to a point that is like painful. I get that from my dad. Um, and you know, I, I am, I'm ride or die. Like I will fight for you as if you are my, like a, like a lion. Hmm. So like, you know, when you are in my, when you are in my family, you are in my family and I will do anything for you. And that's because you earned my trust. Reshma, we're so glad that you came and joined us. Um, grateful for all you do. And I hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Reshma. We all know that moms everywhere deserve more. And I would encourage you to go and visit marshallplanformoms.com where you can learn more about this important movement. How it starts is to get informed, donate, and build allyship. And how it ends is to talk to your lawmakers and elected officials about how to execute change. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dharnikar. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dharnikar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. Hey yo, what's up? It's yours truly, DJ Double Up. Check me out each and every Saturday, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, same place, same time, with all of your and my favorite hip-hop and R&B tracks. Get at me on IG, at DJ Double Up, with all your shoutouts and requests. Buckle up and drive slow.